Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. ESNY. Thursday, a little past 8 p.m., rolling as always with my co-host Chip Murphy. Chip, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good, man. Got to watch the Masters all day because I had all from work, so it was a pretty great day today. How about you? Not bad, not bad, man. Uh, this is actually your you have your week off, and I'm back in yeah. back in the building now after a week off. So I'm not gonna lie, man. I was getting used to waking up at like 8:30 and 9 mm-hmm. every day for a bit, but. The 6 a.m. wake-ups have been a little bit rough, but such is life. Um, very excited for tonight's episode. We're, we're doing a little bit of a pivot. Uh, anyone who listens to the show knows that, you know, we're a hoops pod through and through. But, you know, we've also been, you know, delving into a little bit of pop culture, uh, TV, music, and whatnot. And uh, we're, we're talking specifically to a writer tonight um, that kind of struck a chord with us in one of his most recent articles about the hit TV show on uh, Apple TV, Ted Lasso. So we are very pumped uh, to welcome Saul Austerlitz, who his work has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, LA Times, Boston Globe, just to name a few. Saul, what's going on? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, and so I think bef- before we get into the, the string of questions that Chip and I, ha- I know we have a bunch for you, um, just to kind of introduce Ted Lasso for people that maybe don't know a lot about the show, just a brief summary, um, a very interesting premise, you know, for those that don't really watch and, and like soccer, uh, I, I do. And uh, so, you know, the, the kind of having a um, coach with a football or at least college football background come all the way over to England to coach a Premier League soccer team is just comedy in and of itself. Um, you know, that's, and there's a lot of things that happen that we won't necessarily kind of ruin and give you spoiler alerts, but is it um, still a spoiler shows <laughs> they're, they're filming season two. Is it still a spoiler? That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> gold, golden globe winners at this point. So yeah. I don't think we can really give much away. Um, but you know, just a really interesting story about, you know, a, a characters who, who's overwhelming positivity, uh, and just kind of gentle nature really kind of um, pushes him through a lot of trials and tribulations of, of what that experience might be like. Uh, Saul, reading your article, you know, I, Chip and I both really enjoyed it for a lot of different reasons. I think where I wanted to start was the motivation for writing the article seemed very clear to me. Uh, 2020 and 2021 was just an absolute 
wild year, year and a half, whatever you want to call it, for a lot of difficult, for a lot of different reasons, political discourse, crime and hate towards different racial and ethnic groups of people. Um, was there any one moment that was a catalyst for this article for you? Or was it just after finishing the show that this idea kind of came to you? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the one year anniversary, I suppose, of the beginning of the COVID lockdown and, you know, thinking about the NBA, the night where the NBA season came to a halt and that sort of felt like the start of all this and just thinking about how rough a year it had been. I mean, for me, but really for everybody between, you know, the presidential election and the unrest afterwards and, and you know, George Floyd and, and just a lot of the challenges and that we've faced as a country and just thinking about how, I, you know, I'm always a fan of sort of difficult, complex television and movies and want to be challenged and don't just want to sort of be fed pablum. But at the same time, when I thought back on all the TV I'd watched over the last year and I spent a lot of time watching TV, um, the show that gave me the most pleasure was Ted Lasso. And I never would have guessed that if you like you were sort of describing the show and I thought you did a good job of it. But if you if you took a step further back and said, OK, here's a show. It's based on a bunch of commercials that were on like a third string sports channel that you've probably never watched. I don't think a lot of us would be rushing to like check out the first episode. And so I was a little bit skeptical about it. And but something about the show is just positivity and grace and its ability to create this character who was so warm and wonderful and flawed and like interesting, not like a boring kind of secular saint type character, but someone who, who found a way to like make the world a little bit, make his world a little bit better, I found to be surprisingly moving. Yeah, NBC was sh NBC Sports was shilling Premier League soccer using a brilliant comedian like Jason Sudeikis, and it turned into an award-winning sitcom, just one of the funniest shows in recent memory. It's really shocking. But then you look at like some of the people who are involved, and like Bill Lawrence is involved, who has just made some of the funniest shows, like Spin City, Scrubs, and him and Sudeikis being involved. It's not as surprising, I guess. But I, in reading your article. One of the things I noticed was that you were uh, uh, attracted most to is the kindness in Ted Lasso. And I think that's something like his Jeff mentioned earlier, his overwhelming positivity. And like, that's just I mean, I think ev that's everyone's main takeaway from Ted Lasso. But I, I think everyone loves Ted. But is there anything else that you took away from the show that? maybe at like first glance, you didn't really notice, but then after you wrote the article, you kind of went back and looked at it. Yeah, it was, it was nice for me to get a chance. You know, I sort of wrote the article in part as an excuse to yeah. go take another look at the episodes and especially the ones that I liked. And, you know, I think that the show, one of the reasons why the show kind of snuck up on people was that at first it seemed to be sort of a straightforward fish out of water comedy where, you know, the jokes are going to be about how, and they're funny jokes, but, you know, the jokes would be about how Ted doesn't like tea and, you know, that no one understands his American references and he doesn't know what the offsides rule is and, you know, just like all of that kind of stuff. And then I think about four or five episodes in, you suddenly realize that Ted's life is falling apart 
and yeah. you know that his marriage is falling apart and that rather than becoming some sort of like dark brooding Tony Soprano type character, you know, the kinds of characters that I think we've spent a lot of time watching on TV and, and profitably so, like enjoyably so, um, Ted sort of uses his own anguish as a way to listen better to people and to understand what they're going through also. And that to me, it's unusual on television. It's unusual as a kind of story where you watch kind people being kind to each other, which is I think often considered to be like a recipe for disaster in terms of narratives. Um, but then also just like one of the challenges I think of the last year has been watching in, in many ways, in part, the good, the good part has been watching people be kind to each other. The bad part has been watching how unkind people can be to each other. And so I think that Ted Lasso has been a real balm in that sense. Yeah. When he has the panic attack outside of the bar and then that's when he, uh, finally, like him and Rebecca, like develop that bond, and then, like you mentioned, like they open up to each other, and it's it's really surprising. And you finally start to like, wow, this guy is like not just isn't can't pos no one can possibly be that positive all the time. And he finally has that moment where it's like, oh, my life is turning, my marriage is over, and then he sleeps with Rebecca's best friend, and it's. That's when the that's when the show turns a little bit, yeah. but it's it's yeah he's a flawed. I think they did a great job writing that character where because at the beginning it's like oh he's this peppy guy and it's also he's just this flawed normal person that everyone can relate to too and it's just a very well written perfect character. Yeah, and you'd mentioned Bill Lawrence and Scrubs, and I think that Scrubs is sort of a helpful analog here that, you know, I, I think Ted Lasso is an even better show than Scrubs, but that same yeah. sense of like kind of broad comedy and then the emotion sneaks up on you unexpectedly. It's a, it's a, when it's done badly, it's terrible, but when it's done well, it's a really excellent formula, I think. Saul, so you also mentioned um, the comparison to, you know, really popular shows like Sopranos and and Breaking Bad and to me that was like a really interesting part of the article too that like as a society for whatever reason you know we do have this admiration and our fascination with the anti-hero and um, I guess my first question I wanted to ask was do you think that as a society a show like Ted Lasso could ever reach the heights of a, of a in terms of popularity as a show like Sopranos or Breaking Bad and if it couldn't, and, you know, we could argue, well, it, it, it might just need to be either produced by whatever, a bigger production company, or maybe have some more draw with famous actors. But if it, if a show like that couldn't get to those heights, what would that say about us as a, as a society? Yeah, so I, I think I read it a little bit differently than you. I think in part, it's that the nature of the TV landscape has changed. So, you know, last year, there were some, there were more than 500 scripted shows that were on some form of television, um, you know, whether cable or network or streaming. And so there's more TV than any one person could actually watch in an entire lifetime. And so like the whole notion of the kind of water cooler show where everyone watches it on Sunday night and then you come into work and or school and you're all talking about it the next day. Like it doesn't exist to the same extent that it did. I think that, you know, we had Game of Thrones a few years ago and that that sort of occupied that space, but there aren't really a lot of shows 
that do that anymore, in part just because there are so many things to watch. I think also, just as a side note to what you were saying, I do think that there is like a a kind of dark side to the the fascination with antiheroes. And and I say that as someone who is loves all of those shows, but there was a a book by uh, James Ponawazek, who's the TV critic for the New York Times that came out about two years ago called Audience of One. And it's in part about Donald Trump and his career on television and turning into a political figure and in part a sort of history of television. And one of the points that he made that I thought was so fascinating was he he made a, a comparison kind of across genres from the Tony Soprano, Walter White type anti-hero figures in fictional television to the kinds of anti-heroes that you would see in reality TV like Survivor or The Apprentice and saying that, you know, that figure sort of crossed over from fiction to reality TV to reality as like the kind of person that people felt like, well, you know, they don't do the right thing all the time, but I'm rooting for them anyway, or they get the job done. Um, So there is a little bit of a, a dark side to our fascination with those kinds of characters. And I think that Ted Lasso in some ways is, is he's, is not the first step away from that, but there's been a kind of shift, I think, away from, you know, the notion that the only, that the only prestige television is shows about kind of middle-aged white guys who are breaking the law. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that also like, and I feel like you kind of answered this next question, but um, one of my favorite lines in the article, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it a little bit is, um, Ted is a paragon of the new masculinity for his optimism, his unflagging concern for others and his insistence, sometimes at the expense of his own self-interest in demanding kindliness of others. Um, And and I I also kind of wanted to ask you about that. If you think that this type of character, this can be a trend going forward, or if maybe that's, that's wishful thinking, because I always do wonder like as a consumer, you know, what are we drawn to? Why are we drawn to it? I think a lot of it can do with um, just the climate of of where things are in in our society and culture. Um, But, you know, do you think that maybe more shows like Ted Lasso are are going to be created in the future and maybe kind of, like you said, maybe swing the pendulum back the other way? I do think so. I mean, I think always, you know, nothing succeeds like success. So as soon as a show does well, I think there are going to be imitators. And I think that's probably helpful here. I I think also, you know, part of what I was trying to get at, and I sort of wrote a whole other part of this essay that I ended up jettisoning, but, you know, it does feel like part of what's happening in the United States right now is some kind of crisis of masculinity, where people are, where men are lashing out or you know, misbehaving or or just sort of getting into the dark side of politics, among other things, in part because they're sort of looking for a cause or a thing to be a part of, or not finding meaning in whatever their lives consist of. And so I think that Ted Lasso is sort of an interesting example of that. He's like, in some ways, he's like the most masculine guy possible. He's like literally a sports coach. You know, what what greater thing could one be than that? Um, but he's so the opposite of what he's not, he's not gruff. He's not tough. He doesn't really shout at people. He's not me first. Like he's, 
he's sort of much more interested in helping people than in winning. And I think in that sense, the show's structure ends up being kind of ingenious that like, he doesn't really even know anything about the sport that he coaches. Yes. Right? He doesn't understand it. He He's, doesn't really know what anyone does. He doesn't know, know the rules of the sport. No. He literally doesn't know. He's He says, I'm more interested in understanding the definition of relegation at one point. Like he, he doesn't know what relegation means. Right. He doesn't know what offsides is. He has uh, Nate teaching him all the drawing up the plays for him. He, he doesn't know what any of it is. And that's the, the best part when he's doing the interview with the reporter. And he says, I prior, he says, I prioritize other things over wins and losses. And the reporter's like, I think I'll put that in the story. <laughs> Imagine if there was a coach today that said that, right? Like, and sometimes, yeah. sometimes they do, you know, like if, like if we, if we, like if you take an NBA coach who's in charge of like a developing team, like a really young team, there, there's sometimes going to be those narratives that stick out. Well, listen, we're trying to build something here and, you know, or even a college coach, like we're trying to, you know, help young men be better, you know, and, and whatnot. But I mean, for him to say that is, is pretty wild. It reminds me of a high school coach. Is right. What it reminds me of not like a, he reminds me of like Gene Hackman and Hoosiers or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, not like a, a professional coach. Yeah. But it's, so, it's so interesting too, though, because like, I also feel like that's his sense of community coming through. Like, right. Like there's no one literally, there's no one within the organization that he feels like he can't learn from. Like, even when they're drawing up the plays to play man city, he just asks all the players, like, what's a favorite play? What's a favorite set piece that you guys have run wherever you're from. And he just starts writing them on the board. Um, and I think sometimes like even in coaching, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I ran track in college, but th there's no, there's nothing really to compare it to, but I do feel like sometimes coaches get caught up in their own authority where it's like, it has to come from me in order for it to be good in order for us to run it and for it to be successful. It's got to come from me. And Ted is literally there saying like, no, Nate, like, you know, more than me and these players know more than me. And if we're going to be successful, it's going to be together. So I think that's also kind of one of like the big messages that comes through too. Yeah, and I, I think one of the ways that that emerges is through um, the relationship with Jamie Tart, who's like the star player on the team who ends up, um, you know, moving somewhere else. And one of the thoughts I had on on watching some of the show a second time was that, you know, in in discussing this sort of anti-hero archetype that Jamie Tart is kind of that figure, right? Like another, another worse version of this show would have been called Jamie Tart. And it would have been about, you know, a bad boy footballer who like lives, you know, like parties hard, but yeah, also gets a lot of girls. Yeah. And yeah. No one likes him, but he's, you know, he's like the star anyway. And this is not that show. And I think much to its, much to its benefit. And even at, you know, I, I think what's so remarkable and I, what I find to be like one of the um, emotional high points of the show is the way that Ted and Jamie relate to each other, right? That Jamie has, without, you know, giving too much away, hopefully Jamie has this moment of glory, but also we see how empty it is and how, how kind of brutalized he is. And the only person who's genuinely kind to him, even to his own detriment, even when it's like, something has happened that's not helped him at all is Ted because Ted actually wants other people to feel good about themselves. And 
I think that's a really beautifully done moment that like, again, it kind of inverts all of the kind of sports movie expect or sports show expectations that we have of like who wins or what winning looks like. Yeah. What, um, I, I, um, I definitely wanted to ask this question as well. What, what would you say? I just, I guess, besides the overwhelming positivity and kindness, what are the most appealing personality traits or characteristics of Ted that you would hope to mirror in your own life? I found myself thinking about this a lot watching him, right? Like in terms of how inspiring he was in, in some ways, like, oh, you know, like there are lessons I can learn from this show. Um, did you feel like that at all? Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff, I, some of his personality traits I thought were really funny and and were probably inimitable, but I would love the idea of becoming a person who like just baked delectable, like baked goods in my apartment and then brought them to people and pretended that I had bought them from a store. That's probably <laughs> not, not an achievable goal, but on, on hopefully the more achievable front, I really love to see how he empowered people around him, right? That he'd, he'd been granted this power, probably mistakenly, probably not, like he didn't actually deserve to have it but he found ways to, to make sure that the people around him kind of found the best version of themselves, whether it was the players, whether it was, you know, someone like Nate who kind of becomes his guru and assistant coach, like that, I thought that was really beautifully handled. I would say having the ability to let literally everything roll off of my back the way he seemingly does an entire stadium of people screaming, cursing him out. And he's just like, yeah, I'm going to let this go. <laughs> like in front of his family, when that one fan screams at him, fuck you, when are you going to win? And he's just like, Hey, good to see you. Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't know how anyone could possibly do that. If I could, if I have that level of tolerance, like I would love to have that. <laughs> it's definitely something to shoot for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with Chip on that one too. I think um, having that level of of even keelness, whatever you want to call it, yeah, is, is pretty um, noteworthy. And I also and I also too really appreciate the way he just um, utilizes everybody kind of within um, his crew. You know, like he really does, even when he's not necessarily being so open to. Um, I forget his assistant coach's name, but he wants him to, um, oh man, what is, uh, he wants him to sit Roy, right? He wants him to, uh, yeah. he wants him to, to put him on the bench. And at first he's, he's very resistant to it and he finally comes around, but I do appreciate the way he really does make everybody feel valued around and really just kind of ask everybody, you know, what do they think? You know, what, what, um, what kind of uh, what thoughts they have on on certain issues that are going on with the team? Yeah, yeah, and and Ted's friendship and his whole relationship with Coach Beard is just kind of kind of wonderful. Yeah, the all the most of the best moments I think on on the show are between the two of them. The the when he sets them up for the the Doc Brown impression that might be my favorite moment on the entire show. Ronald Reagan, the actor, yeah, that that was fantastic. Yeah, there's also a beautiful. <laughs> Where, where we see Ted and his, his whole life has basically fallen apart and he's yeah. down outside the pub and Coach Beard just like suddenly appears as if from nowhere and passes mm -hmm. him a beer. And yeah. I thought that was just like a lovely touch. Yeah.
And when he when he sleeps with Rebecca's friend and he's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And then he, he finally caves in, tells him what happened. And Coach Beer goes, you want to talk about it? Yes. Right now. Let's talk about it. <laughs> he always knows exactly what to do with Lasso. It's just it's great. It's really well done on that show. And but moving, I want to move into uh, another topic, Saul, because I feel like we have you on here. We can't possibly not talk about the show friends since you wrote an entire book about it and i love the show friends my sis i have three sisters they all love the show friends so i want to ask you about friends obviously it's one of the most popular shows of all time so i understand there needs to be i'm sure there's many books written about it but why did you decide to write a book about friends so about 10 years ago um i eight, 10 years ago, I worked on a book called Sitcom, which was a history of the American sitcom. And each chapter was about a different, a different kind of key sitcom in the story, in the history of, of television. So I wrote a, I wrote a chapter about friends and sort of felt like I'd said my piece about it. And then a few years later, I came across an article from the Times. And it was about how high school students in Manhattan had become obsessed with friends and we're watching it and debating it and thinking about it and arguing about it. And that kind of blew my mind because I just, you know, I assumed like with every other show with very few exceptions, you know, shows generally they're huge hits or not when they're on the air fans from the time may still remember them fondly and watch them, you know, in reruns or on DVDs or streaming. But the idea of like new fans who hadn't even been alive when the show was on rediscovering it or discovering it for themselves sort of fascinated me. So I decided that this was a phenomenon that I was interested in understanding more. And, you know, Friends has become such an enormous hit that Netflix a few years ago was willing to pay $400 million to keep it for one more year. And they would have paid $400 million probably in perpetuity, except Warner Brothers wanted to create an entire streaming platform in part just so they could have friends for themselves. So it's it's this huge business, but it's also something, it's just a show that people really love and, and have fond feelings for and really personal feelings for. And that really fascinated me, like the conjunction of of television history and also of of kind of people's emotional response to tv and emotional connection um is just always really interesting to me it is fascinating how that show is one of the shows that'll always live on and there's so many big stars to come on from that show jennifer aniston courtney cox and matthew perry pretty much everyone lisa kudrow is amazing too but yeah the I, that show is incredible but i i read a lot of your articles in preparation for having you on here and you wrote about uh gilmore girls 30 rock and i noticed a lot of the stuff you write about is comedy and i saw that you teach a class at nyu about comedy so i wanted to know why you uh got into teaching comedy why you got into writing comedy is there any particular influences you had any uh not maybe stand-up comedians that you like growing up Yeah, I actually, I sort of came at it from a slightly different direction. Um, I had, uh, you know, studied film in college and I'd started off my career working as a film critic and writing about film and television. And I kind of got interested in comedy in part because I felt like there wasn't all that much being written about it that took it 
seriously, um, you know, that sort of honored it as its own form that has its own traditions and its own history and was sort of interested in itself and its own development rather than just treating it as like the little sibling of drama or, you know, like movies that weren't good enough to win the Oscars or whatever the case may be. Um, so I wrote a book about film comedy and that kind of sparked my interest. And yeah, I mean, obviously there's, there feels like there's a lot more being written about comedy now than there was maybe 10 or 12 years ago, but I still, I just, I, I love the thought of kind of getting first crack at something or of, of kind of getting to write about something that, that, you know, people haven't necessarily um, delved into in all that much detail or sort of given that that kind of serious thought to. And, and obviously Friends is something that people have written about a lot, but, you know, I got a chance to interview um, the creators of the show and talk to writers and crew and some of the actors on the show and just kind of get a sense of their own experiences and what it was like. And, you know, there's something fascinating about being part of that kind of experience, you know, where a show has, like we were talking about earlier, you know, that the idea of a show having that kind of a hold on the audience or of, of, you know, being that kind of Titanic figure in the TV landscape, like it just, it doesn't really happen anymore. And Friends is in a way kind of the last of, of those giant shows. Did anybody you talked to say anything that surprised you or was it normal, just TV things that you hear when you talk to people? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about the 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 business of being a TV writer, which was really fascinating to me, um, and about how wonderful and how grueling a job it can be simultaneously. That like the people who wrote the show felt like they were in a room together with the funniest people they'd ever met in their lives and got to spend all day with them. The downside was that they got to spend all day with them, and like you could never go home. You know, the work was never done. Um, especially in the early years of the show, they would regularly basically work all night and into the morning and like drive home as the rest of the crew was coming in for the next day's work. And, you know, that's just, that's a hard way to live, even when you're 25 and, you know, you've gotten your dream job in television. Um, but yeah, it was fascinating to me also to hear about all the, all the ways that television writing is kind of about transmuting these incredibly tiny things that happen to you. Like, oh, I went to the store the other day with my girlfriend and, you know, she convinced me to buy a pair of leather pants and I don't really like them. I'm probably not <laughs> sure. And like how, like how that goes from this thing that's like hardly even worth mentioning to becoming a plot line on a TV show that like tens of millions of fans could like quote every line from. Like there's something kind of fascinating about that. Yeah, I was listening to the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, Phil Rosenthal, do an interview, and he said he used to be in arguments with his wife, and she would, in the middle of the argument, she'd stop and be like, and don't use this on the show. You're not allowed to use this on the show, because he would take things that would happen with his wife and use it with Ray and Deborah. It's really funny that that happened, that that, that they turned that into a Ross storyline, that the leather pants thing. It's funny to know that that actually happened to someone. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's with, without the talcum and, and the leather yeah. <laughs> implements. That, um, so that day-to-day -day grind that you describe, um, especially when you're writing on a TV show, I imagine it's got to be really intense on a, on a show like SNL, where there's, you know, there's a weekly spot and... Um, you know, they're having guests on frequently, 
Um, do you think as a writer, it is, it is more difficult to work on a sitcom that maybe has seasons, but there's a little bit more of an, an off period um, or SNL? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I could see the, the, the pros and cons of both, but just um, with your experience, what would you kind of say? Yeah, I don't know. I think SNL is probably pretty grueling. I think that working on a, a scripted show has probably gotten a little bit less terrible in the last 10, 15 years, just because of how the business has changed. So, you know, if you don't have to crank out 22 or 24 episodes a season, it's just like a little bit more humane. Um but yeah, from from what I've read, you know, from reading the book live from New York about SNL and and reading what people have had to say, it sounds like it's also incredibly fun. And then you burn out because it's just yeah. such an intense environment. Yeah, that's also, what I was gonna say. People in interviews always talk about how it's it's great to work with like celebrities, and then you it's just intense and it can get cutthroat, and they're happy to leave by the time they're out of there. Is what you can gather from all the interviews that people do. Like yeah. I just yeah from comedians and stuff. So. Um, also, just going back to friends really quickly, one one question that popped up in my mind, I have to admit, I'm not a huge, wasn't a huge uh, fan of the show. Not that I wasn't a fan, but that I just didn't see a ton of episodes. But in terms of the personality styles of Joey, Chandler and Ross, um, for the time that the show was created, do you feel like that was kind of new in terms of because we, we talked about Ted Lasso as, as kind of this new masculinity, right? And Ross was very much kind of like more of a, at least in, in a stereotypically stereotypical way, more of a sensitive character. Chandler was neurotic and Joey was kind of like your, your more classic macho guy. Do you think at that time showing um, those three different sides of kind of like the male personality was kind of new for TV in that age? Or do you feel like that would that had already kind of happened and maybe it was just kind of a continuation of it. Yeah, I think it was new to some extent. You know, I, I got to speak to Warren Littlefield, who was the president of NBC at the time, and he pointed out something interesting, which was that, you know, around the time that Friends premiered, there weren't really a lot of shows on the air about people in their 20s. You know, there were a lot of shows about families where it was mom and dad and the kids. There were a lot of shows about work life where it was doctors or lawyers or teachers or whatever kind of working together. But that middle ground of, of somewhat younger people, which it seems like what, even as I'm saying it, it sounds wrong because there are so many shows like that now, but at the time there just weren't that many shows. And, and the people who, who sort of made the decisions in television, they were a little bit afraid of shows like that because they felt like, okay, like who's gonna watch this show, right? Like our adults, our people in their thirties or forties or fifties gonna watch a show about being 25. Their thought was, no, 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 it's too, it's too risky. And so I think it was new to some extent that you had characters like that because they hadn't really been on television all that much before. I think we had somewhat, you know, there is some overlap I think between Seinfeld and Friends as like two shows about people in New York who hang out together and sort of have quirky adventures together. But yeah, I think there was, there's definitely something kind of, it's, it feels like a different generation of characters on friends that they're somewhat younger and, and sort of coming from a different place. And yeah, I, I think, I think there is something kind of interesting about the way those, the way those male characters kind of 
hang out together and relate to each other. Um, David Crane, who was one of the creators of the show, um, talked a lot about how he sort of saw Chandler and and um, Chandler and Joey as being kind of like a like a heterosexual gay couple that like they're always getting into squabbles with each other and like fighting about stuff like you know who's gonna like what furniture are we gonna pick out and and you know I think he he sort of found a a kind of gold mine of comedy there in like some of the ways in which those characters relate to each other yeah the running gag that Chandler was gay was one of the best running gags on the show it was very funny how they did that throughout the series that even when he was engaged to Monica that was, and married to Monica they still did it <laughs> right <laughs> um chip do before we move on to maybe some Lakers stuff any any more TV stuff that we kind of want to ask Saul I did want to ask Saul one thing I I noticed from reading some of your stuff, you have a very eclectic taste in TV shows. You pretty much watch everything. I wanted to ask when you write about TV, because I know when we write about sports, sometimes we're encouraged not to be fans of the teams when we write about certain teams. So when you write about TV, is it hard to, do you have to separate being a fan of certain TV shows? Are you still a fan of these TV shows when you write about them? What's your process with that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to not be the person you are when you're doing the writing. Um, Yeah. I think it's important, you know, especially with a bigger project, like a book, it's important to not edit out the bad stuff. And not like there was such, you know, so, so many like awful horror stories with friends, but like, you know, to tell the whole story and to include everything that you get um, to sort of give a, a full warts and all perspective. Um, so in, in as much as that's the case, I would say that, I, that I'm, that i you know, more of a reporter than a fan. But yeah, I mean, you only, I, I only want to write about things that I'm enthusiastic about or that I feel like are, are things that I love or, or stories that I find fascinating. Um, so that to me is sort of the impetus for for kind of getting started and staring at the blank screen in the first place. So yeah, I, I, I definitely do not like stand at a remove from the things I write about usually. Okay. Actually, you know what? I wanted to stay on that too. Um, just for another question. Uh, was it hard to transfer into, you know, being an adjunct professor? Um, I mean, I, I imagine it's, it's like a labor of love, right? Writing and, and it, and it, it can be really enjoyable. And then, you know, teaching it, obviously, you know, the, depending on the, the students that you work with, um, motivational levels vary, you know, quality, quality of writing varies. But was that an experience that when you started was difficult, um, you know, kind of, I, I guess, you know, how did you get into it? what made you decide to do that? And, you know, kind of what were some of the, the pitfalls and maybe obstacles that maybe you ran into in the beginning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to just shout out my students at NYU who I love. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I it's it's been a really fascinating experience for me. I, I've this is now I think my sixth year of teaching, and I hadn't really done it beforehand, and so you know, the thought of it was kind of terrifying of of facing a room of students and pretending like you know what you're talking about. Um, I think it made it a little bit easier for me that I was teaching writing, so I was like you know, kind of teaching the thing that I actually do. 
helping students write essays, helping them kind of think through how to be the best writers they can be. Um, and I've, I've weird, I've surprisingly to myself, I found that I love it. Like there's something, you know, I'm 42 years old. Um, I sometimes kind of feel bogged down by life and being able to interact with students who are still so passionate and excited about everything and discovering the world afresh and just wanting to like learn everything and debate everything and talk about everything and just discover whatever they can is incredibly invigorating. And, you know, being able to have those discussions week after week with students, being able to like sometimes, you know, hopefully push students a little bit forward and, and you know, help them become better writers is just such a, a wonderful gift. And, and I've just been so happy to be able to do it. That's awesome. Um, and I, it sounds like maybe it's kind of influenced um, maybe, you know, some of your writing as well, too. I can imagine that, you know, as a process, it can be difficult. Um, like you said, staring at the blank page, it can be really difficult to find motivation. And I could imagine after, you know, working with students like that, um, that maybe that does get a little bit easier. You find little um, things here and there about your interactions. Um, but that's great that, you, you know, you've been doing it for six years. and and um, that is something that you really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also like what kind of along the lines of what you're saying, as you realize that you have to explain how to do this thing that you just have previously just been doing on your own, I think it also helps you to sort of think through, okay, well, how am I doing this? What are the tricks that make this a little bit easier? Or what are, what are the routines that kind of, you know, get you to the place you want to get to? And, um, you know, of course, uh, being a hoops pod, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the lovely Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, Chip and I are both Knicks fans. I'm uh, sorry. I don't, I don't think I can't speak <laughs> for Chip, but I, I don't think he we said, I'm sorry. Did you notice? Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not. Well, I mean, you know what? It's funny of like, I I'm trying to think. So I'm, I'm 33. And I can honestly say I've been a Nick fan for uh, 20 plus years. And it's in like most of those years that I'm sorry would be like super, super, you know, almost like on all of point. Them and much, yeah, almost all of them are super <laughs> accurate. This year has been pretty good. I'll, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take our little shred of success that we have right now. And I was just going to say, like, usually when we talk to fans of other teams, like, there may be a history of a rivalry. Um, certainly in the seventies, there, there was one with the Knicks and Lakers, but like, I don't think, and I'm not going to speak for chip, but like, I don't have any hate towards the Lakers or anything like that. Um, they're always a very interesting franchise to me for a lot of different reasons, but I wanted to ask you kind of, uh, of course you grew up in LA, so that's mm -hmm. going to be part of the, the reason or Genesis for your, your Lakers fandom. But, you know, um, just growing up, what are your first memories of, of being a Lakers fan? Yeah, I mean, for obviously like the Lakers Nick stuff is before my time, but definitely just like growing up with the Showtime Lakers and remembering seeing, you know, Magic and Kareem and Worthy and and just the like fluidity that they played with. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm gonna head into Nick's bashing territory. And I don't I don't mean it like that, but like there was such a contrast between the kind of Pat Riley Lakers of the 80s and the Pat Riley Knicks of the 90s and like my my preference has always been for like that smoother, prettier basketball. So like 
you know, I'm a Lakers fan, but like of, of the non-Lakers teams that I've enjoyed watching the most, like the Warriors of the Steph Curry, Clay Thompson era were among my favorites just because they were so beautiful to look at and just to see what they could do. Um, so that that's sort of always been the kind of basketball I've loved the most. And I think it's in part because of Magic and later Kobe and, and sort of seeing the the sort of like wizardry that they could pull off on the court. Sound like you might also be a Brooklyn Nets fan too, because I, I think that they're going to be uh, playing kind of like that with with the way Kyrie, KD, and Harden play. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten a chance to see them all that much this season, but I'm really, really curious about them. And and it seems like it felt to me like an experiment that either was going to succeed tremendously or blow up entirely. And so far, at least, it seems more like the former than the latter. So far, so good. But yeah. we haven't even gotten to the playoffs yet. So. Right. There's still a yeah. lot of time. For <laughs> that is true. Um, how about this this current crop of of Lakers? So how often do you get to see games? Um, I'm sure having LeBron James on your team is uh, just an amazing gift that I will probably never experience in my lifetime. Um, but just you know, what what's what's the kind of where is the joy that you find in in watching? Obviously, they won a championship. But um, what do you enjoy about watching them these days? Yeah, I've really, I, I really in, got to enjoy seeing LeBron and Anthony Davis play together. Um, I hadn't, I, yeah, I hadn't been giant fans of either of them prior to them joining the Lakers, just to be honest. Um, I feel like as LeBron's gotten older, like he's, he's sort of reached this weird ongoing peak that just never seems to end where most players his age are retired or like sitting on the bench and he's still somehow the best or one of the top three or four players in the NBA. And it's just, it's like against nature that that's happening, but there's something it's, it's been really fascinating to me to see the ways in which he's sort of become a savvier player as he's gotten older that I think he used to be able to just kind of like out muscle you to the basket and I think that now he's gotten craftier about how he does what he does and just seeing the ways in which Anthony Davis, who'd sort of just been stuck in New Orleans and like never really gotten anywhere in the playoffs has totally flourished by virtue of having LeBron there. Like, I think they've both really served each other well that LeBron has let a second superstar kind of have some or most of the limelight and that Anthony Davis has understood that like whatever, whoever's scoring the most points, LeBron is the leader of the team and he's going to like take his cues from him. So they, they've created kind of a nice partnership, which again, like I felt like it could have gone either way. And it's been, it's been kind of lovely to see. That's interesting. Why weren't you much of a LeBron fan before he came to the Lakers? I think again, it's more just like a finesse versus muscle kind of thing. Like I'm always going to be with the like Steph Curry's of the world who look mm -hmm. like, you know, they should be pushed off the court and like beaten up in the locker room, <laughs> somehow score 40 points a game. Yeah. I don't think you can be a fan of Steph and LeBron. I think there's, they're in two different camps just because they're there. They have some weird, like friendly, I guess, rivalry, Steph and LeBron, but they're always poking at each other. They, they yeah. seem to be always poking at each other, Steph and LeBron. I think also for me, I, I mean, I, I think it's become increasingly hard for me to separate out sports and politics, which just sort of overlap in right. all ways. And the ways in which I think LeBron has been really 
like a clear and undisputed leader among NBA players in terms of being like a, a forceful advocate for racial justice and also just like against some of the horrors of Trump um, was really inspiring to me and and sort of, you know, that that I think softened me some towards LeBron, you know, where I may not have liked some of the like aesthetics of his basketball, but I find him to be like a, a really admirable person. Yeah. It made it hard not to root for him when he started to step up. Yeah, like, and just become the face of the league official. Like, he's become the face of the league for a long time, but on and off the court, he just became the guy. Yeah, for and spoke for everyone. And he's just, it's hard not to like him. And I feel this, I feel the same way about Carmelo Anthony, to be honest. (laughs) Just because we're Knicks fans. I I love Carmelo for that reason. Like, I, I just think he's such a great guy. I don't see how anyone could. Uh, dislike him for that reason because I think he's so well spoken and does so much for charity and everything but no I I agree I think LeBron is such a I think it's hard to root against him I think he's done so much for the league and he he leads the league I mean he's the voice of the league now and yeah undisputably like yeah no there's no rival Mm -hmm. for that position yeah and I think too it's 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 nice to see in this day and age too and I'm not gonna like um push the combo too far into kind of like a slander of Michael Jordan, but um, you know, famously, you know, go for it, that, go for it. If you want, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but like famously he has that line, right? Like that very um, Republicans quote, buy sneakers too. Exactly. Is that the one? Quote the company line, like, you know, I can't affect my brand. I don't want to affect my bottom dollar. And um, you know, so to, to, to see LeBron stand up for what he thinks is right in those situations, um, is big. And I do think that more than in other sports, um, him being the clear face of the NBA is so much more impactful than at least just off the top of my head, any current player in the NFL or major league baseball. There is no face of the NFL, really. Right. I mean, the NFL is the NFL. The NFL is the NFL and LeBron is the NBA. Um, so when he takes that stance, everybody follows suit, you know, and, and it also too, it makes other people feel comfortable with speaking up too. And I think that kind of doesn't get spoken about a lot either. Like it's great for LeBron to be the shield and to be the first one, but then what about chip? Like you said, Carmelo Anthony, I'm not saying he's taking his cue specifically from LeBron and we know that they're close off the court. But I do think LeBron does make it easier for other players to speak up, which I think also adds um, to kind of just the message anyway, in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that the Bucks walk off the court last year during yeah. playoffs without LeBron having led the way to some extent. I mean, I think obviously they made the decision on their own, but I think that it helps to know that you're not Colin Kaepernick where you're, you're sort of, standing alone and no one is necessarily come to your side when you, when you take a courageous stand. Right. Saul, would, would you ever consider writing about sports? And if you have already, I I apologize if, if I haven't seen it, but would that be something that you would ever, you know, consider getting into? I I love sports. Um, I don't know how much I have to say about it, like in a, in a way that would be worthwhile for people to read, but I do love it. I've, written sometimes about sports on TV, which I found to be kind of an interesting undercovered thing. So I've written about, you know, some of the sports shows like Pardon the Interruption, which I'm a 
ongoing fan of. Um, and just like, you know, I think that sports fans have such interesting, akin to the conversation we were just having, have such sort of interesting, complex, emotional relationships to sports and to the teams and players that they like and care about. And I think it's even true of, of the, you know, the sports media that we have kind of uh, in-depth and, and nuanced relationships with the people that we watch telling us about sports. Um, and I think that that's, that's really fascinating and something that hasn't been written about all that much, the ways in which like, you know, we may turn on the TV every afternoon or evening and watch, uh, you know, Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser argue about the sports of the day and feel like, you know, that they're somehow like duking it out for you or that you're kind of listening in on this great conversation. And that, that to me is sort of this fascinating phenomenon. And I'll shout out uh, Tony Kornheiser, Binghamton grad. So uh, uh, that, that's a pretty good one for me. But man, PTI is a standard. I'm sure Chip probably feels this way too. I mean, yeah. like that's really how, that's probably the first show because, you know, if you go to radio and, and if you're in New York, you know, like Mike and the Mad Dog and what. Yeah, I was just going to say. But for Mike TV, the Mad Dog, yeah. Will Bond and, and Kornheiser on PTI, like that was the standard. That's really where it started. And then, and then kind of around the horn, and then um, first take used to be called cold pizza, right, Chip? Like that was, I think, how mm -hmm. it started too. Yeah. Um, but I really, that was always, whether I was coming home, I don't know if it was from school or college, but PTI was something I always rushed home uh, to watch because they were always great. Yeah. And now, I mean, I, I don't watch the other shows quite as much, but I feel like there are a lot of other shows that involve just like people shouting at each other, which yeah. I could not stomach. But there's something... First of all, I think it helps that the two of them are really funny together and that they're just like they're yeah, very friends. Yeah. You can friend. friends. Yeah. And and you sort of feel like you're kind of being led in on a great conversation that's happening in like the, you know, the the newsroom of a newspaper where these two guys are just yeah. doing it out. Um yeah. So it it feels it feels smarter to me, I think, than than some of the other shows where it's just like we're pitting two people who are diametrically opposed just so that they can yell at each other. And yeah. That will like juice the ratings. Yeah. Pat McAfee has talked about it on his show. How He's been on like those ESPN shows that you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, you, you go in and you like pitch your opposing viewpoints and the people who disagree, they put you on the same on opposite sides. That's how they do it. And it's like, well, that's disingenuous. And it comes off as that. And yeah. that's, you know, it's people who don't have relationships with each other. And, that's why PTI is a step above. It's two friends just having a debate. And it's in the first take stuff is disingenuous because like Max Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith aren't friends with each other. They're just two people yelling at each other and they can't possibly believe all the outrageous things they say. No. There's no way they believe no, all of those things. <laughs> they can't, right? I mean, <laughs> I hope not at least. Yeah, right. <laughs> But you know what, and that also brings up, um, you know, another good question too. Like I'm sure you see this in in writing a lot, but I know like for Chip and and myself who are like just constant, constant consumers of anything sports, whether it's on Twitter, TV, um, writing, or anything like that. The idea of, you know, whether it's in the title or just the 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 idea behind the article, just for shock value whatever is going to get clicks, whatever is going to boost ratings or anything like that. Um, I don't, you know, I, I guess I would ask as a writer, how do you avoid that? Um, you know, if you see 
maybe colleagues or, or people, you know, kind of engaging in that and maybe it's profitable for them. Um, how is that something that you, you avoid? I think I mostly just stick my head in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist. I don't know if that's a good decision, but but yeah, I, I try to to just avoid all of that, you know, as long as I'm getting to write about something that that I find interesting, you know, trying to find the sweet spot between things I find interesting, things that other people find interesting. Um, that's sort of the main thing that I'm aiming for. Um, you know, it's always great when people read and engage with my work. And I, I always find that to be, you know, really wonderful. Um, but also when it doesn't happen, I try to just keep going about my business as much as that's possible. Yeah. Chip, is um, anything else for Saul before we wrap up? Well, I wanted to ask, I don't know if you looked, Saul, at the uh, the Showtime Lakers series that the that HBO is doing. I saw that they're doing, I don't know if you looked at that at all. I wanted to get your thoughts on that there it says they're examining the professional and personal lives of the team and they're it's based on a book by jeff perlman mm -hmm. uh, called showtime magic kareem riley and the los angeles lakers dynasty of the 1980s and i guess it's going to be a limited series and it's star-studded cast uh john c riley's uh jerry bus adrian brody's pat riley Sally Field is Jerry Buss's mom. Michael Chiklis is Red Arbach. Jason Siegel is Paul Westhead. A lot of famous people on the show. So I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the HBO doing a Showtime Lakers series. Yeah, I, I, it sounds, I mean, you had me at John C. Riley. <laughs> that, that's good enough for me. I actually, I, I read Jeff's, Jeff Perlman's book and, and okay. got to interview him. And I thought it was just an incredibly fun, really engaging, really well-reported book. And obviously had all sorts of things about the Showtime Lakers that I didn't know when I was 10 years old and watching them on TV. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's clearly just like an abundance of great material in there that I could easily see making for a good show. I'm, I'm sort of curious. I, I can't entirely envision Adrian Brody as Pat Riley, but yeah, that was a weird one. I'm, I'm sure that, that they'll pull it off somehow. Yeah, it's HBO. The the one that was interesting to me was that the actor playing Kareem, it's his acting debut. Like he's a wow. former basketball player. Obviously, I mean, he's got to be really tall and he's a former Harlem Globetrotter. Like he played overseas. It's his acting debut. So that should be interesting. Hmm. I think I also heard that Bo Burnham is in it. So it's like, it's all yeah. these like incredibly tall comedians. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah i think jason siegel is like six seven oh yeah he's really tall so it, it's like it's like i don't know about their basketball skills but they're at least legitimately tall yeah that yeah i i that's definitely one i have to check out for sure um yeah uh well listen saul uh, we've been very appreciative of your time tonight uh again you know really love that article with ted lasso and um you know before we let you go if there's anything that you're working on now that you want to promote um and where any of the listeners can find you on twitter uh you know please please let uh, the good people listening know mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh my book generation friends came out in paperback a few months ago so people can check that out anywhere you buy books and you can follow me on twitter at saul Austerlitz. awesome saul thank you so much again uh, really appreciate it and uh, for everybody listening we hope you guys are staying safe and we will talk to you soon.